If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Well, today we celebrate, amen? We celebrate a resurrected king. We celebrate a, a resurrected savior. When we talk about Easter, understand it is the most important day in the Christian calendar. Now, some of you are like, well, pastor, I like Christmas more. What about Christmas? Well, that's fine. You can like Christmas better, but Easter's more important, okay? Because Easter's when we celebrate the resurrection. You know, in the early church, there was a, a greeting among Christians that was a reminder of the incredible living hope that they possessed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it went like this, he is risen, and the response was, indeed, some of you know it, right? The response is, he is risen, indeed. Can we try that? He is risen. Now, this place is packed. It should be much louder than that. He is risen. Amen, amen. Today we celebrate a resurrected Savior. If When you came through the door today, hopefully you got a little note sheet. I want to encourage you to pull that out. I'm not going to share for too long today, but I want to share with you on the importance of the resurrection. And I want to give you two Ps, okay? Even if you don't have a note sheet, write these down and jot them down in your phone, okay? The resurrection, when you talk about the resurrection, understand it is both proof and provision. Proof and provision. First of all, the resurrection is proof. It's proof of prophecy. Well, what does it prove? Well, it proves that the prophecies regarding the coming Messiah were actually true. You know, during his earthly ministry over and over again, Jesus appealed to the prophecies of the Old Testament to prove his claims that he was the Messiah. Luke 24 tells us that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to two disciples who were walking along the road and, and they were confused in regards to, to Jesus' death. And we're told that Jesus appears to them and he begins to speak with them. And he says there in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He took all of the Old Testament. He said, look, I want to point, I want to see, I want you to see how this points to me. And then he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus also said in John 5, 46, if you believed Moses, then you would believe me, for he wrote of me. The resurrection of Jesus, I gotta say today, is proof of prophecy. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but more than that, understand today the resurrection is proof of his personality. Next week, we're going to jump into a, a new book as a church, and many of you know we spent the, the last year, more than a year, in, in the book of Acts, but it was a good year, right? How many of you enjoyed walking through Acts together, unpacking that, amen? Um, and, and so I knew as we're coming to the end of the book of Acts that we need to go somewhere else, and I was praying about going into one of Paul's epistles, or one of his letters that he wrote to the churches during his missionary journey, many of them. And many of those epistles, those letters, are written to address issues within specific churches that he writes to. 
But Paul's letter to the Roman church is unique because it's written to a church that he hasn't visited yet. And so instead of addressing specific issues, Paul very clearly lays out for the church the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I'm so excited that we're going to be journeying together through one of the most powerful, one of the most foundational books of Christianity, the book of Romans. And we'll probably be there for over a year. I'm just going to give you a heads up, all right? But I'm excited for it because here's what I found, that those who understand Romans, who really get a handle on how a sinner can be received as righteous by a righteous God, they tend to live differently, right? And so for next week, here's your homework, read Romans chapter one, okay? And then come back next week. Some of you need to hear this, we are here every Sunday. Seriously, we're here every Sunday and we would, we would love for you to join us on this journey. Wherever you're at in your walk and your understanding of who God is, I believe that the book of Romans will take you deeper in that understanding. You see, our our mission as a church is simple. It's to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And we believe that happens as we encounter God in worship and in his word. Amen? And so beginning his letter to the Romans, look at what Paul writes. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? By what? What does it say there? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying very simply that Jesus' resurrection is the exclamation mark. It's the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the proof that Jesus is who he said he was. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. You see, the fulfillment of prophecy proves that Jesus is the Son of God that was promised in Scripture. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says this, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, the scriptures predicted he would do this. And then he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. He's saying, scripture prophesied that the Christ would die, but scripture also prophesied that he would rise on the third day. Listen, anyone can make predictions about the future, but having those predictions fulfilled is an entirely different thing. If you were to make statements about the future, if you wanted a, a career as a self-proclaimed prophet, let me just give you a little tip on how you do it. The safest way to do it is to make very few statements and make those statements as broad as possible, as generic as possible, right? Makes sense, right? Because the more statements you make about the future and the more detail you go into, the less likely that precise fulfillment will be. For example, what is the likelihood of somebody in this room today predicting the exact city in which the 75th president of the United States will be born? Anyone want to take a shot? Good, Good luck, right? Did you know that the prophet Micah predicted the birthplace of the Messiah 700 years before he was born? What is the likelihood of predicting the exact way a religious leader would die thousands of years from now, especially if that manner of death were presently unknown and would remain unknown for hundreds of years, yet David did this in 1000 B.C.? What's the likelihood of predicting the specific date of the appearance of some great future leader hundreds of years in advance, but this is what Daniel did 530 years before Christ? Listen, if you and I were to come up with 50 specific predictions about a person in the future, and someone we obviously haven't met because they're in the future, right? But what's the likelihood that some person, one person will fulfill all 50 of those predictions? It's not very good. 
Now, what if 25 of those predictions were about what other people would do to him and were completely beyond his control? You see, some will say, well, Jesus was familiar with prophecy. He knew the Old Testament. And so he arranged things in a, in a certain way so that it would look like he was fulfilling all these prophecies and really he was just deceiving people. Now, those same people will say Jesus was a good man and they'll say he tried to deceive us. You can't do, say both, right? Either we, he was a, a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he said he was. But I have to ask this question. How does someone arrange to be born in a specific family, right? How do you put in that request, right? Or how does someone arrange to be born in a specific city, a city in which their parents didn't actually live? Or for that matter, how does someone arrange for their own death and specifically by crucifixion with two others and then arrange to have their executioners gamble for his clothing? How does someone arrange to be betrayed in advance? How does someone arrange to have the executioners carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs of the two victims on either side but not their own? How does someone escape from the grave and appear to people after having been killed? It should at least make you ask the question today, could Jesus be the Son of God? Listen, when we talk about the science of probability, do you know what that is? The science of probability determines the chance of something happening, right? And so a professor at Westmont College, Professor Peter W. Stoner, he used that science to calculate the probability of one man possibly fulfilling the prophecies made concerning the Messiah, the major prophecies. Now, it, it was serious work that was done. The, the estimates were done by 12 different classes, over 600 students, university students, and they came together and they weighed all of the factors. They discussed each messianic prophecy from Scripture at length. They determined and examined all the circumstances that might have led to someone conspiring to fulfill a particular prophecy. They made their, their estimates conservative enough so that it was finally unanimous, even among the skeptics, that this was good. However, the professor took it a step further, and he took their estimates, and he made them even more conservative. He involved other skeptics and other scientists to make their own estimates to see if his conclusions were fair, and finally, he submitted his figures for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation, and after review, they verified that his calculations were correct in regards to the scientific material that he presented. For example, in Micah 5.2, where it's written that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the, the professor and his students went ahead and, and determined the average population of Bethlehem from the time of Micah to present day. And, and then they divided it by the average population of the earth during the, the same time period, and they concluded the chance of being born in Bethlehem was about 1 in 300,000. Now, that's not very likely, but it could happen, Right? And after examining only eight different prophecies, they conservatively estimated that the chance of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. One in 10 to the 17th power. That's 17 zeros, okay? One in, I had to look this number up. I didn't even know what it was. 100 quadrillion, all right? To, to help with this, I need a volunteer. Jeff, you're sitting right there on the end. Why don't you come on up? Come on up, Jeff. Help me out. Run, but don't trip, but run, come on up. All right, to illustrate this in, this, in this bucket, I have 10 quarters, okay? One of those quarters is red. So what are the odds, if you reach your hand in this bucket, of pulling out a red quarter? Not very high. What is, what's the number? One red quarter, 10 quarters. One in 10. One in 10, there you go, one in 10. Not very good, but there's a chance, right? All right, let's see how you do. Don't look, don't look, man. 
First and second service struck out. Third service struck out too. All right, you can put that back. I need those quarters for the cafe. Um, so stay here, because I want to explain this a little bit different. One in 10 chance, three services, nobody got it right, right? Now, now let's talk about this number, one in 10 to the 17th power, because here's a chance. Just say you picked out the red coin, and I'm gonna give you a chance to go double or nothing, all right? And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take a, a silver dollar. You know what that is, silver dollar? It's a little bigger than a quarter, and I'm gonna cover the state of Texas. With 100 quadrillion, I could cover the state of Texas two feet high. And I'm gonna put one of those silver dollars in there, and I'm gonna, it's gonna be red, and I'm gonna stir it up, and you can walk wherever you wanna go in Texas, and you can reach your hand down at any point and pull out one silver dollar, you get one chance, all right? Would you take that chance if your life depended on it? No, because that's smart man, you're a smart man. Because what are your chances? Quadrillion, one in 100 quadrillion, that's the exact answer, thank you, Jeff. Give him a hand, come on. Understand that's just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing eight prophecies and having them all fulfilled in one man from their present day, from that time until present day. From those figures alone, you can conclude that the fulfillment of these eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of the prophecies. Again, the Lycohid was one in 100 quadrillion. Another way of saying that is that anyone who minimizes or ignores the significance of biblical prophecy concerning the Messiah is very foolish. In case you're wondering, the Mega Millions had a jackpot of $1.6 billion in October of 2018, and some of you bought tickets. Don't raise your hand. It's all right, though. But if you bought a ticket, you know what your odds were? They were 1 in 302,575,350. Not very good odds, but much better than what we just talked about. And so Stoner went on to do his investigation and he calculated the, the probability of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies is one in 10 to the 157th power. In other words, 157 zeros. If you want to start writing them, you can start writing now. They're probably done by the end of the service, right? But here's the thing you need to know today. Jesus didn't fulfill eight prophecies. He didn't even fulfill 48 prophecies. Conservatively speaking, Jesus fulfilled at least 332 prophecies in his earthly ministry. Now, obviously, I don't know what the number is, but it's pretty small, right? Truth be told, the probability of one man fulfilling all those prophecies is virtually impossible, right? Unless the prophecies are given by somebody outside of time who saw ahead how things were going to go, right? Unless they were given by God himself. And so this professor concluded, any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Here's what's so amazing. Since the time of Jesus, approximately 40 major claims have been made to be the Jewish Messiah, right? But only one, Jesus Christ, fulfilled prophecy to substantiate his claims, and only his credentials back those claims up. The prophet Isaiah predicted that Messiah would be born of a virgin, a natural birth of unnatural conception. In other words, his coming is beyond human planning and control. Several prophecies recorded in Isaiah and the Psalms, they describe the social climate that he would be born into, that his own people, the Jews, would reject him and the Gentiles and would believe in him. We're, we're told there was a forerunner for him, a, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, one John the Baptist. An astounding number of detailed prophecies were fulfilled 
in, in Jesus' final week of life alone on the, in his ministry. You know, one had to do with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, what we celebrated last week, right? Writing hundreds of years before Christ was born, the prophet Zechariah made this prediction. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, right, righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. We know that both Matthew and Luke tell us that on the Sabbath, Preceding his crucifixion, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a previously unbroken colt to the shout of the multitudes. Could this be the Son of God? The other prophecy that's so amazing to me is in regards to the 30 pieces of silver that, that were given to Judas when he betrayed Jesus. Do you know that they're prophesied in Zechariah chapter 11? Listen to this. Zechariah 11:12 tells us, then, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Seven ramifications of this, this prophecy alone. We, we know according to scripture that Judas asked the priest before his betrayal, he says, what are you gonna give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Later on, he was remorseful for what he had done, and he, he came to them, and he said, I've sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, no, what's that to us? You see to it yourself. And it says there that throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went, and he hung himself. But the chief priest taking the silver said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought, bought with that a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Understand, this one prophecy in Zechariah indicates that the Messiah will be betrayed, and not just by anybody, by a friend. For how much? For 30 pieces. 30 pieces of what? Of silver. And that silver will be cast onto a floor, not just any floor, but the floor of the Lord's house, which we know is the temple, right? And finally, we see that it's used to buy a potter's field. Every facet of this prophecy by Zechariah, the kind of money, right? The amount of money, what was done with it, it all came to pass exactly as the prophet had said. Now, you have to ask, Again, if you're thinking man or thinking woman in the house today, could this be the Son of God? We can look at prophecy dating all the way back to 1012 BC, Psalm 22. It predicts that the Messiah's hands and his feet will be pierced, clearly references to, to the fact that he will be crucified. But here's the kicker. The description was written 800 years before crucifixion even began to be practiced by the Romans. I want to show you a graphic today that just kind of geeks me out. I love charts and graphics and things. Um, I don't know if you've seen this graphic, but it's taken from the Infographic Bible. Really neat, if you're a visual learner, I recommend it, the Infographic Bible. But in this graphic, you see all those lines there, right? Each one of those lines is a prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament connected to its fulfillment in Jesus in the New Testament. Every one of those, you could spend hours going through them, right? But hear me today, the climactic proof that Jesus is the Messiah is that he rose from the dead. It's the fact that the grave couldn't hold him, that, that death and the grave could not hold him. You see, all these, these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but the climactic proof is that he rose from the dead. 
During the time of the French Revolution, a certain M. Le Pew complained to Talleyrand that a, a new religion of his, one that he thought was superior to Christianity, he was complaining because he says, ah, for whatever reason, it's not catching on with the people. And Talleyrand had some suggestions for him. He said to, to this man, he said to M. Le Pew, he said to ensure the success of your new religion, here's what you need to do. All you have to do is have yourself crucified and then rise from the dead on the third day. Right? That's all you got to do. Listen to me, Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. He is the Son of God. Jesus was raised also to prove this, to prove that our sin was paid in full. To let us know today that we can truly receive forgiveness. That that our sins, as, as bad as they are, as deep as they are, that they've been paid for. Paul states in Romans 4.24, he says, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered up. He was put to death for our trespasses. All the wrongs we've done, all the ways that we've rejected God, and just as important, he was raised for our justification. Now, We use that word justification sometimes as a big word. Do we even know what it means? Well, think of it this way. Justification, I like to say, is this. Just as if we never sinned. Think of it this way. Because of the resurrection, we can stand before God just as if we never sinned. Righteous. I heard a story of a man who went to Mexico and his Spanish wasn't very good, but he really wanted to buy some pottery that he found in in a store, but he didn't know the price. And He finally figured out that if he took the money he had in his hands and he slowly put it onto the table that the merchant would pick it up when he was finally satisfied. Listen, when God the Father was satisfied that the price for sin was finally paid, he reached down and he raised his son to newness of life. And so the resurrection proves, amen? The resurrection proves, but I gotta tell you today, it also provides. It provides for us this morning a possibility of purity and righteousness. Romans 6, 4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, in other words, here's the reason why. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A.J. Gordon, one of the founders of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary where my father went to school, he, he, he told this story of uh, one day being out in the field. He was walking by his house, and as he was walking a- along the road, he looked over and he saw this man that was pumping vir- furiously at one of those hand pumps. You know those pumps, right? And he's just going for it. And he's looking over amazed because this guy just keeps going faster and faster. He never slows down. He, he, he doesn't stop. And so he thinks, man, this is a remarkable sight. I've got to go meet that guy. And he begins to walk toward it, but as he gets closer and closer, he could see it was not a man at the pump, but it was a wooden figure painted to look like a man, and the arm was hinged, and it had been uh, strapped to the pump, right, so that as the water was coming out of that well, uh, pouring forth, that his hand was moving. You see, it was an artesian well, and the water, the man wasn't pumping the water, the water was actually pumping the man, right? Now, I want to tell you today, when you see a man or woman who is at work for God and producing results, please recognize that it is the Holy Spirit working through them, not that individual's efforts that are giving the results. Amen? All all he or she has to do, all you have to do is keep your hands on the handle and allow the Holy Spirit to actually produce new life in you. 
Not only does Jesus' resurrection, though, provide the possibility of purity, which is amazing enough, where actually tells, it actually tells us, Scripture tells us, that it provides the power to live pure. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, if that spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, don't miss what this is saying. It's saying that the same Holy Spirit uses the same power to help us live holy. Now, the use of that name Jesus is of interest here. It's the only other place in the epistle where the, the single title is used is Romans 3.26. The name Jesus, of course, was Christ's human name, right? And, and Paul wanted to, to call attention, I believe, to the fact that Jesus was once in a place of weakness, but God raised him from the dead by his spirit, and the same spirit who raised Jesus is now dwelling in us. And so while these verses primarily refer to the coming resurrection, they also imply that the Holy Spirit can give us victory over sin here and now. Do you believe that today? He can give us victory here and now. Later in the epistle, Paul demands that every believer give over his body to God as a living sacrifice, right? And this act of surrender is one of the most important steps to a life of victory. Jay Gordon was traveling one other time and he was with an Englishman that had come over to visit with him and they went up to Niagara Falls and the Englishman looked at Niagara Falls and he couldn't help but remark how sad it was to see such a great waste of power, right? All these millions of gallons of water going over the falls, this deafening roar, and he said, this is the greatest waste of power in the world. And Gordon answered, no, my friend. The greatest unused and wasted power in the world is the Holy Spirit in the lives of the people of God. And I gotta say today, don't let that power go unused. And don't let that power go wasted. He gives us the power to live rightly. And finally understand this, that Jesus was raised to provide for us pardon. John 10, 9, Paul, tell, um, Romans 10, 9, Paul tells us clearly. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. Is that what it says? There's a good chance you got a shot in the dark. Is that what it says? What does it say? You will be saved. As the worship team comes, I want to close with one story. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond even to what you've heard today. But I heard the story of, of a man who was alive back in 1830, a man by the name of George Wilson. And he was convicted of robbing the United States mail. He was, stole some mail and he was sentenced to be hanged. A lot different than our judicial system today, right? I mean, crazy, right? And the president at that time was Andrew Jackson. And so he heard about this. He says, this is crazy. You can't put this guy to death. And so he issued a pardon for Wilson. But here's the thing. Wilson refused to accept that pardon. And so they went back and forth. Well, what do we do? This man's been pardoned, but he, he, he won't accept the pardon. And finally, it went to the chief justice marshal who concluded that Wilson would have to be executed. And here's what he wrote. He wrote, a pardon is a slip of paper, wrote Marshall, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it's refused, it's no pardon at all. George Wilson must be hanged. If it is refused, it's no pardon at all. Today, as we 
gather in this place and pack out this place on an Easter Sunday. Listen, we celebrate the resurrection today because it is an assurance of pardon for sinners. And, and maybe you're here today and someone drug you into this place and, man, you've heard about Jesus before. Like, you, you know, okay, yeah, Jesus loves me. I know that. I heard it before, right? Maybe you even believe that he went to the cross and he died for you. But here's the question today. Here's the most important question I could ever ask you. Have you, by faith, accepted his pardon? Have you accepted the pardon that he offers with heads bowed around the room? I want to give you a moment. And this moment is is between you and God. It's not about the person to your right or, or to your left. It's between you and God. Because when Jesus went to the cross, it was personal. Jesus went to the cross for sinners. And if you know you're a sinner, man, you qualify today. But hear me. The value of what he did on the cross for you is determined by your acceptance of it. If you refuse to accept it, it's no pardon for you. And here's the thing. One day you'll have to pay the price yourself. And and sadly for some, the pardon comes too late. For others, the the pardon is not accepted. I just got to plead with you today. Don't let that be you. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Respond to him. So I wonder with heads bowed around the room today, if anyone would just want to respond to this today and would say, Pastor, I want to respond. I want to receive the pardon that Christ extends to me. Anyone by an upraised hand that would just say that this morning, praise God. Anyone else will give time. Say, I want to receive that pardon. Again, maybe you've heard it before. Or maybe today you, you need to come back. You need to come back and receive that pardon afresh. And we can wait. If you're making this declaration for the first time or you're coming back to him, listen, it's as simple as this. Admitting a, that you're a sinner, that you've gone your own way believing that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and finally confessing him as your Lord and Savior. Anyone by an upraised hand want to do that today? Praise God. I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to pray with you. And if you would pray this prayer today, it's not the words you say, it's more the posture of your heart. Confessing him as Lord over your life. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask everyone to just repeat after me. But if you mean this today or if you're saying this for the first time, there is forgiveness, there's pardon available to you. So dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Today I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. So today I turn from my sin. I welcome you into my heart and my life. I want to trust you and follow you. Would you be my Lord and be my Savior? Amen and amen. If you prayed that prayer today and you meant that, if that was a sincere prayer today, Scripture says there are angels in heaven rejoicing because you've been brought to new life. And that same power that we've been declaring today that rose Jesus from the dead, it will begin to work in your mortal body to change you and shape you and make you more like Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, or even if you're here today and you got some questions and you want to talk, I'll be up front. Other pastors will be up front at the end. We would love to pray for you and pray over you.
Would you stand with me, church? I want you to be encouraged today as you go from this place that the resurrection is proof of our pardon. And so before we close with a song, can, you, can we say it one more time at least? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. Let's worship him before.